I'm here today representing Humanity for Prisoners. I don't know if you know that. Does anybody know about that group? Everybody pretty, pretty much does. That's good. Um, we do advocacy for people who are incarcerated in lots of different ways, medical, Freedom of Information Act, connecting them with people, all that kind of stuff, trying to make human connections for them and their need. Um, I'm the interim, hopefully very shortly interim, director for Humanity for Prisoners. My chairman of the board, who's also the, my golfing partner, said, well, you go speak to that C3 group. And I said, well, like, what is it? He goes, well, it's not really a traditional church. And I said, well, what, what should I do? He goes, well, I think they just want you to talk for 10 minutes or so and kind of talk about Humanity for Prisoners. And after talking um, about what you wanted, it's like, oh, no, I have to do three sessions. And anyway, I was, uh, he, I'll tell Russ about that when I get back to the office on Monday. <laughs> but um, I said, well, I'm a professor of homiletics. What should I do? And um, he said, well, you can't really you know, do a sermon. And I said, well, OK. I, Realized it probably shouldn't be hellfire and brimstone. I don't do that stuff very much anyway. They said Kent does Bible stuff every once in a while, and so that might be okay. So I thought, well, okay. Uh, I'll blame him if, if, if nothing else. Um, I should tell you a little bit about my involvement in prisons. I try not to go on too long with this, but... Um, my father was involved with the Muskegon County Jail in doing prison ministry when I was an adult. And um, I kind of watched that from afar. One of the things that happened while he was there had nothing to do with prison ministry, but it's worth talking about because it's one of my favorite dad stories and reminded me during the singing of my father. But um, he would have a battle with uh, the squirrels on his bird feeder in Muskegon, where I grew up, and he would use a pellet gun on them. And... Um, and they're um, grabbing his bird seed that way. And he was telling some guy at prison who he ministered with about that. And the guy said, oh, really? You get squirrels. What do you do with them? My dad goes, well, I just dispose of them. Somebody said, no, no, don't do that. He said, um, I eat squirrel. I really like it. I grew, grew up doing that. And I thought, oh, OK. I mean, everybody has their thing. Anyway, he um, said, just put it in a Myers plastic bag and hang it on my front doorknob. and." Um, he said, I'll take care of it from there. So my dad shot a squirrel, and three, four days later, shot another squirrel, and three, four days, another squirrel. And I always went over and hung him on the, the door of the guy. And two weeks later, he saw him at the jail ministry and said, hey, um, how about those squirrels I've been giving you? And the guy goes, what squirrels? <laughs> He'd been hanging them at the next door neighbor's door instead of his, anyway, it's like, I mean, I always thought, you know, one squirrel was kind of weird, and, and two squirrels would have been, odd, but three would have been like terrifying for me anyway, so um, my father had a good sense of humor. I hope the next door neighbor did too, but um, I, I never was that interested in seeing people in prison. I had gone to jail a few times um, to visit people when I was at seminary, and I went to prison one time in Toronto. I lived there 20 years. I visited a son of a um, parishioner, and that was that. But when I came back to Calvin um, to teach homiletics, I got roped into going down to Angola Prison down in Louisiana, and one thing led to another, and um, my involvement there led to their inviting me to be on the board of HFP. 
And um, I've been involved for about 12 years now, pretty intensely with Kelvin Prison Initiative, with Humanity for Prisoners, and um, with a few other kinds of stuff like that. So um, I thought today um, you had the big questions, and I think, I don't know whether you printed the question in the handout or not. Um, you'll see where I got it from in a second or so. But the question for me is, um, to what degree are people salvageable? Once they've gone to prison or before they've gone to prison, how, how do people become the sort of people who embrace and embody life and goodness again after they've been so wrecked by having gone to prison and been in prison and the things that happened that led up to being in prison? Um, so I thought we could probably focus that, that question um, today. Balance my... Yeah, it's just not going to work. Someone remind me not to leave my glasses here because then I'll have to come back and find them. Anyway, um, so I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about um, a passage in the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about the passage in the New Testament per se, probably, but um, in Luke 15, when Jesus talks about... Um, God's concern for people who are lost and far from home. Colorado psychologist Larry Nutter, I found him online, maintains that people, some of them at least, are simply not salvageable. He says, I worked for 23 years in prison, and he said, I um, worked for 13 years in the mental health unit of a major hospital, and he says, I've encountered people who are lost causes and not redeemable. People I'm talking about in one shape, way, shape, or form, he said, will always be lost souls. They'll either be in prison or halfway houses or state work programs or in some way supported by the state. They have no ambition to work. They have no ethic, no pride in themselves. They're frequently compulsive liars who believe their own stories. He said, I've seen young people in this situation, and I've seen people in this situation in the late stages of life. They've accomplished nothing and never will. Yeah, one thing I'd say is I'm glad he's not my therapist, but um, <laughs> anyway. In Larry Nutter's view, some people come with a big L on their forehead, losers, lost people who would not be worth most people's time or money or attention. Lost causes who probably are and probably always will be lost. Now, in the part of the New Testament that I've chosen to reference this morning, there's a smattering of losers gathered around Jesus. Tax collectors. I mean, these guys are spiritual losers if there ever were losers. Obvious sinners who'd work to suck the lifeblood out of the Jewish people who they lived with, serving themselves by extorting money on behalf of the Roman occupation army. Everybody knew that these guys were headed for hell in a handbasket. A smattering of moral losers are in the crowd too. Prostitutes, pimps, drug addicts, drunkards, sinners who the establishment would say aren't worth anybody's time, attention, or money. But here's the shock. There is Jesus smack dab in the middle of them, hanging out with them, talking, laughing, snacking with them, teaching them. My God, 
snorts one of the religious leaders. What kind of loser would hang out with major league sinners like this? What's wrong with him anyway? Bad company corrupts good morals. I mean, anybody knows that. Righteous people should know to steer clear of sinful losers of the sort he's associating with. Make no bones about it. These leaders drew a sharp distinction between losers and winners, between righteous and unrighteous. I suppose, at least consciously or unconsciously, we might be inclined to draw similar lines. We assess certain people, I do it sometimes, as not being worth our time, attention, or our money. If pressed, I guess sometimes we'd say, well, they got themselves into that predicament themselves. They should get themselves out. They've got a track record of losing. Most of us would peg, peg Tim, a guy who I met this summer, as one of those losers. Somebody almost everybody would steer clear of. He's one of those lost souls that I knew in prison. He grew up in a family that took him to church once in a while when he was a kid, but not all that often and pretty infrequently. About 20 years ago, he murdered somebody during an armed robbery attempt. In prison, he became a committed Satan worshiper. I don't think there are very many of them there, but he was one of them. At six feet six and weighing more than 400 pounds, he looked like a loser and he weighed like one. His fellow inmates nicknamed him Cheeseburger, or the more friendly ones called him Burger for short. He became a pariah because of his hygiene, or lack of hygiene, I suppose, and his scary religious commitments. No one wanted to befriend him, let alone be his bunkie. Even his fellow convicts came to regard him as one of those people who was kind of beyond redemption. Maybe we tend to evaluate people that way because we have a natural tendency to establish our own goodness or righteousness by comparing ourselves to other people. My kids do that all the time, and I do it occasionally too, I guess. The guy on the street corner who's panhandling, glad I'm not like that. The completely tatted up young woman in the mall, why'd she do that anyway? Or the wobbly alcoholic down by the mission? Or maybe it's the completely affluent, self-centered young couple down the block. We have a tendency to write them off as not worth our attention because they're losers. Well, I may have my faults, we say to ourselves, but thank God I'm not like that. And if we start to think that way, even for a moment, this passage in the Bible that I'm going to reference should catch us up short. Discount the possibility of the lost being found, it turns out, and you're terribly out of step with God. Ignore losers that, losers that cross your path as beyond God's reach or unworthy of your attention, and you're terribly out of step with what it means even to be a human being. In Luke 15, Jesus tells two little stories that are intended to help us reflect on God's attitude toward losers. In the first little vignette, this shepherd stands by the gate that is letting the sheep back in for the evening, and he's counting them. One, two, three, 97, 98, 99. 
99. Ah, he short one short, he short one sheep. He pauses for a moment. You're going to have to go out and look. So he heads out into the darkness, up hills and down hills, until he fears a bleeding out in the distance. And sure enough, he goes and finds his lost sheep, hoists the sheep onto his shoulder, and carries him back to the sheepfold. And this is when the story gets a bit crazy. The guy calls his neighbors late into the evening and throws a celebrate my found sheep party. <laughs> I mean, go figure. Glad he's not my neighbor. Then right on the heels of the crazy shepherd story, Jesus pictures a peasant woman with some chump change who loses one of her coins in her dirt floor cottage. Not exactly life savings, 10 denarii. Maybe she overreacts, she lights a lamp, sweeps the floor, searches carefully, and when she finds her lost coin, she's done something even crazier than the shepherd. She calls her neighbors and has a lost coin celebration. I mean, of all the crazy things to do. One lost sheep, one lost coin. I mean, is it really worth the hoopla? But Jesus says in this passage that there's more joy in heaven over one loser who finds his way home than of all the self-righteous people who never seem to have gotten lost. Good news here is that God's business is about finding lost people and bringing them home, offering them new life. And the good news for us this morning is we get to have a piece of the action. You see, God is still busy today finding lost causes like the ones I've mentioned and bringing his wandering children home. God rescued my Satan-worshipping friend Tim from an extreme situation. He told me that even though he'd worshipped Satan for 20 years in prison, that he did have some friends who talked to him about God occasionally. One of them was a guy named Troy. He said, we argued a lot, but I could sense a sense of love and concern for me behind his attention. But this spring, Tim con con contracted COVID. With his poor health and his 200-plus extra pounds, he was a poster boy for comorbidities. He became extremely ill and ended up in intensive care. You might think that it was his close brush with death that turned his life around, but it wasn't. In the intensive care unit, Tim felt the hands of the good shepherd lift him up onto his shoulders and begin to carry him home. What finally turned me around, he said, was the nurses and healthcare workers that took care of me they were so incredibly kind. He said to me that they touched my forehead. They would speak kindly to me when they changed my linens and cleaned me up every day. He said, I felt the touch and encouraging presence of the love of God in the hands of those people. For the first time, he said, I kind of knew what those people in my childhood talked about when they talked about the love and care of God. In that intensive care unit, without being able to speak a word, he found himself being led to new life. He fell into the loving arms of God, is what he would say. When he got back to prison, he said, I got rid of all my satanic books and the paraphernalia, the music. He said, I was changed. Now, how much credit you want to give to God is up to you, I guess. 
God sometimes, in my view, uses people like us, ordinary people, to be significant influences in the lives of other people and to lead them toward life. Whatever your religious convictions are today, I invite you to join the search and rescue mission for, that I'm, ta I'm attributing to God and to those who follow God. To coax people in gentle and in loving ways to see the value and possibilities in other people and to not leave them blind, but to help them into new life. That's why I'm involved in prison stuff. It's the image of God that I see in other people and the dramatic change I've seen somehow happen in the lives of so many people I know. And again, I want to thank you for your supporting HFP and for the work that we do. And um, I guess I'll end there. I probably am early. My, uh, my, one of my teachers said, it's better to have them say, so soon, rather than at last. <laughs> um, so there you go. If you have any questions for me, I guess there's a question session afterwards. So um, I'll uh, take on people then if, uh, if they'd like to ask me anything.